All right, here we go again. We're back with Clearing Corners. I'm Matt, here with Cam. We're sorry that this took so long. We're getting toward the end of a month of uh, the topic that we're going to be talking about today. And this isn't a topic and an observation month or awareness month of what we're typically getting used to. This isn't like the sky is blue month or National Avocado Day. You know what I mean? Like, it seems like there's a day in a month for pretty much everything. Yeah. And this one is different. And for those who aren't aware of what the month of May is, it is the National Mental Health Awareness Month. And the United States has actually been observing May as that month since 1949. So this isn't anything new. Um, this is something that our country has recognized as something that we need to bring awareness to. That's what we're here to do today. We're going to jump right in talking about the law enforcement side of this subject because there are difficulties. Cam, I I know you're going to agree. We have challenges when it comes to mental health. Yep. The individuals that we deal with day in and day out. Very difficult for law enforcement to kind of get a gauge as to what we're dealing with. Are we dealing with mental health? Are we dealing with an individual that's on drugs? Which is something that is very muddy at times. Are they just suffering from drug-induced mental health? Very muddy at times. Yep. And it's something that, that we recognize we need further education. We need further training. But we're trying to bring awareness. We want individuals to understand. We, we do recognize that when we're called to a, any given situation, I mean, think of any that we deal with, Cam. I want people to understand that, that we get that call. It could be a family fight. It could be a psychiatric call where somebody is, is saying that they want to commit suicide mm-hmm. or that they're thinking about it. We recognize that we're going in there dealing with an individual who needs to talk or needs to have some resources. And hopefully we can bring to light with our conversation today, um, letting people understand exactly what we deal with. But I'm hoping that we can point people in the the right direction as to how to find uh, resources. Yeah, I think that's important. You know, giving our perspective as, as what's law enforcement, kind of their thought process behind it. But then also this is, uh, you know, I was surprised to hear since 1949, um, this has been a recognized uh, month. Because um, honestly, I, I hadn't really known that. I didn't even really know this was Mental Health Awareness Month till um, recently. Uh, I'm not surprised because there is like Donut Day and all those different days out so there. National Donut Day. Yeah. And so... Which I won't, I, I won't observe that day. I just want everybody to understand 
I will not observe National Donut Day. It's part of our job description. Well, I'm just going to put that out there. Unless you I'm shall in, partake if, of a donut. Unless I'm in plain clothes. But it's <laughs> off limits. If I'm, if I'm uniformed up, don't even offer me one. <laughs> Personal preference. Uh, but with mental health, uh, this is, um, I've seen, I've got a close family member that deals with some mental health stuff. I know Matt does as well. Um, it's, it's tough. This is a really tough category. It's really tough for law enforcement to deal with. Um, luckily enough, our agency is, uh, kind of always been on the forefront, at least since I've worked here. Um, mm-hmm. I got hired on, you know, about seven and a half years ago. And it was a requirement to be CIT certified immediately, um, and that's uh, crisis intervention team. Uh, and it's it's super important that I'm not saying every officer needs to be CIT. Uh, we've actually kind of gone away from uh, mandating CIT to everyone, um, but de-escalation training um, important is is crucial. We dedicate a lot of time and effort to it. We actually try to implement it into. Firearms training days, uh, defensive tactics training days. Um, De-escalation is a part of everything that law enforcement does. And the trainings that we do, to, I mean, can't think back to even the interview and interrogation training and trainings that we attended together. Even within an interview and interrogation, there is a de-escalation type aspect to it. So everything that law enforcement does, everything that you're talking about, 100%, we, we have to push de-escalation in all aspects of our, our field. Yep. And uh, so de-escalation, obviously, is something that we, we hit pretty hard. Um, and there's other, other fixes our agency has been on top of um, from the get-go, at least since I've been here. And, and I agree with them. And I, th- I think uh, it's important that if you are a listener and you work for an agency that does not do this, you should... Uh, consider it but um, unless it is actively violent uh, we we don't respond directly to the scene Um, you know we'll get close so we can respond real quick if we need to but we call talk with whoever's the one who called us um, about it rather it's um, a mom calling in that her son is going through crisis um, rather it's, you know, we get the calls all the time of someone who took a bunch of pills because at the time they wanted to end their life. And now, um, you know, they're actually thinking about a little bit more than just that immediate knee jerk reaction or whatever crisis they're dealing with. Um, and, or they've, they've reached out to a friend and, and kind of gave them that a, you know, I'm moving on, you can have my stuff or it's just not worth it anymore. Just know I always love you. Whatever it is. Which is um, going to freak any friends, family out. Right. And that's why they, they react and they call. Yep. And we'll get there. Cops. We'll try to make those phone calls and and ultimately talk with them and, and try to come with a peaceful uh, resolution and get them the help they need. Mm-hmm. And just real quick, uh, so what Cam's talking about with our, our particular agency, we have taken the, the, the stand and it's actually within our policy in our department that unless there is an immediate danger in terms of somebody else, hostage-type situation, other people in the house, where this situation and this individual who is having a, a mental crisis, whatever you want to call it, we don't have all the information until we get on scene. A lot of times, 
the reporting party, family members, friends, whoever will say, my friend, my family member is having a mental crisis. We take the stand in, if it's, the, if it's only the individual within the home, or if other individuals who had called in are now out of the home, like Cam said, we take the stand, we're going to make a phone call in. We're not going to push the situation and show up at the door. The reason for that, it goes line in line with suicide by cop. We don't want to push an individual to feel like we are backing them into a corner. Now, understand, this is not even, there is debate in this, even within the law enforcement field. And I'll give a story real quick. About nine years ago, when I first was going through CIT training, we were training with another agency. And I I obviously won't say what that agency uh, and who they are, but there was a debate that started in class because that particular agency goes straight to the door. We had mentioned the policy that we take in handling these things, and we try to make a phone call to them and talk them down and then talk them out and let them know that we're here for you. Here are the resources that we can provide for you. We, we talk to them, but we also don't want to back them into a corner. And there was a back and forth within this class. And Kim, I don't know whether you have experienced this same thing with trainings that you've been to, whether you went in CIT, but this happened particularly in, in this particular training when I was going through CIT. And there was kind of a heavy back and forth mm-hmm. between the agencies. And we were accused of, of not caring about a life. That is far from the truth. We are just taking a stand and saying, we recognize that when we show up with the badge, looking tacked out, whatever the case may be, if an individual is in a mental health crisis, we personally believe, and through our personal training and experience and our department's training and experience, that this has been a very successful way of handling something that isn't exigent. You've seen the same thing? Well, in, in the stats are there, um, you know, suicide is not easy to do. Um, it sounds wrong saying it, but there is courage behind being able to do it. And a lot of people do not have that ability. Um, and that's why um, a lot of people try to push that suicide by cop. They know if, uh, you know, they come at us real quick, dig into their pocket and pull out that phone that we will, you know, we're trained to engage that threat. And at the time, obviously, the officer would, would think that that's a, a firearm or some sort of deadly weapon if you're running right. doing that. Um, but, no, I have seen that. And in another example is we recently had a SWAT call out. Um, an individual um, was in a public area, which is why it kind of went the, the route of SWAT being called out just to help kind of contain it. Um, Because this individual had a firearm. And he put the uh, gun to his head a couple times. And I remember one of the operators um, had requested permission to deploy less lethal to try to save his life. It's really hard for us as officers. I know there are people out there who do not think officers are there to... Um, save lives or we just want to write tickets or, or whatever, which obviously is not uh, not the case. Far from it. Far from. But um, 
it's really tough. You know, you want to use that less lethal because in our mind, we do want to save a life. Yeah. Maybe, maybe if I deploy that, um, they'll, they'll drop that gun and then we can go save them. But the issue that therein lies is, um, what happens if that's what triggers them and then they do shoot themselves or there's, there's a lot of things involved and we can play what if games all day, but to I mean, I've been on a lot of calls and actually I've been on a lot of psychiatrics or suicidal calls where we park short and we talk to them. And um, I'm not aware of one where I've been there, done that, and then they killed themselves in the time period of me being there until we actually physically have contact with them. But uh, the research is out there, the studies are out there, and the videos are out there of of mm-hmm. agencies across the nation that go straight to the scene and, they push and, then, the they, issue. and then they get into a, a deadly force scenario. And I'm not even going to go there about the lawsuits that those agencies receive, but that's a family member of someone who's, who has, has died. And if mm-hmm. parking short, calling them and trying to deescalate before we even go there, cause take the time law enforcement are, it's in our name, right? We enforce laws, right? But we on these these instances, they're not violating the law. It's, it's oh well, yeah. On, on the ones that you're talking about, yeah, yeah. It, no law has been violated on the specific ones that you're talking about. Yeah, right. So when we show up, if someone's in crisis and also and they've been really mad, upset, talking about them killing themselves, and then they see police officers, they're like, and now that you're making things worse, you're just going to jail. That's not the case. So if you can call them and explain, look, you haven't done anything wrong. We just want to tell you what resources we have. We'd like you to take, take it to the hospital. Well, I don't want to go to the hospital. Why? Just because I want you to talk to someone who is, is certified in, in helping you through this situation. That's not me. I'm here to listen to you and talk to you and get you there. Yeah. But there are people much better suited to actually address the issue. You know how I always handled it. You you came on these. Um, for our listeners, we talked about it, how Cam and I used to work very closely with one another. And that's how we uh, gained a respect for one another, not only building that friendship outside of work, and uh, but within work as well. So you've seen me on these scenes, and I was very open with these individuals, and I, I would tell them, I'm not a professional, man, but I... I, I have two good ears and I would let them know I'm here to listen to you and here's the things that I can try to assist you with. But that's the, that's the de-escalation part. I'm not there to escalate the situation. I'm not there to pull my gun. I don't want to pull my gun. Sometimes I believe that there have been many situations where law enforcement um, in the past has pushed the issue. And many times it's because they go straight to the door. Sometimes these calls come in as just the individual calling a hotline and saying, I'm done. Yeah. I'm going to kill myself. And then what does the hotline do? The hotline calls police. And then many times that police agency will show straight up to the door, knocking, announcing, this is who we are, open the door. Uh, so-and-so police department. If you can imagine, think, think to yourself, and it, it makes sense to us because I think we were fortunate. I, 
I like our model. I like our policy and how we handle these situations. I wish other agencies, all agencies would adopt this nationwide. Yeah. There is a time and a place to respond to the scene. Yep. We are strictly talking about no exigency type suicidal calls. Again, family members are not in danger. Other citizens are not in danger. It's just the individual going through a mental health crisis saying that they are going to end their life. I believe there's a better way than just showing up at the door and knocking. Yeah. Pounding on the door and saying, police department, open the door. We want Absolutely. to talk to you. Absolutely. And I think it's important that, um, and, and I'm going to put this out there. I, I'm willing to bet that if you go up to pretty much any officer out there and say, hey, if we came up with an idea that would stop officers from having to respond, or would you be okay not responding to those? I'm willing to bet pretty much every officer is like, yeah, you know, there's probably people who are better suited to deal with the actual mental health aspect. And I, I truly believe that we do our best. Um, and the issue we run into, and the reason I don't know that moving away from law enforcement is, is really an option, and we're going to talk about some, some different ideas that some agencies have pushed, but think about our calls, right? If we go, if we get dispatched, um, well, for I know you're in investigations now. I knew it was coming. Um, so when I get I dispatched, so I, I actually get calls. Yeah, I get calls. I have to go somewhere. Um, <laughs> anyways, when when we get dispatched to one of these calls, a lot of times uh, medical, fire, they get in the area before us, but they won't go make contact. No, they won't. They wait for law enforcement to render the scene safe. Now, there are reasons behind that, and and that's part of the issue, and we'll talk about it in a minute here. But having officers not respond, um, I've seen it plenty of times on my calls um, where, you know, they go from someone going through crisis goes from calm to extremely agitated to aggressive back to calm. Um, and they Up have and down. extreme potentials for becoming volatile. Um, Which is why you won't see the paramedics and the uh, paramedic firefighters go in. And they'll just stage in the area. Right. And unfortunately, we have seen some places um, that have tried to implement social workers responding without law enforcement. Um, and there was one killed um, at the end of last year on December 3rd, um, stabbed to death. And it's, it's unfortunate um, because I, I believe that person. And when they try to take law enforcement out, I, th I think they're trying to do the right thing as far as taking law enforcement out. Because, again, we enforce laws, like I said earlier in this episode. And this they're not actually violating laws for the most part. You know, obviously we right. go to them where it's a family fight. And it's because they're a mental crisis. And there's been law violations. and, and Kind, kind of like what you said. I think people... They don't want to escalate the situation. And mm -hmm. so I understand the idea yeah. that's out there saying we don't want law enforcement pushing the issue. But you have to at least hear our, our experiences with these in order to understand you will at some point put yourself in danger, yes. like you're, what you're talking about. Yep. And I, I think there are um, ideas out there. I know there's some agencies in California you had mentioned uh, when we were talking before um, some in Arizona, mm -hmm. um, but there are places out there and in, in 
a lot of cities are not going to be able to afford this or or do it, but have some sort of psychiatrist that rolls with a patrol officer and their sole job is to go to these types of calls. But Where do you find those? Yeah, I, I, that's I don't just have it. the answer. I don't think you know? there's tons of psychiatrists on hand to just get hired with all these agencies. And just roll with a cop? Yeah, as I, well I, as I can't imagine pitching to like an agency our size, we would need you know, at least six quite a few, and then they can't take days off. You know, they'd, they'd have to be at every shift, you know, because these go all the time. We deal with these calls all the time. Um, and you and I were talking about, and just so our listeners know, one of the conversations that Cam and I were, were having as we were preparing for this particular episode is the rise in psychiatric calls that come into law enforcement. Mm -hmm. We've seen it for over a 10 year period. So you take a decade a snapshot just within our particular area and they continue to rise. We don't have the answers as to why mm -hmm. it's, it's not law enforcement's fault that these numbers continue to rise, but what is it in society? What is happening within society that we all need to have this month of awareness to where we say, this is a problem in America. This is a problem. Yep. Yeah, and, and so obviously we need to try to figure out how uh, across the nation we can, you know, better deal with these. And I think, I think the main thing we need to look at is the resources that are available. So when law enforcement responds, um, you know, obviously if there's a law violation, if it's um, something that is, you know, domestic violence or something, and we are required to take action, we're required to take action. But the main thing we want to get them is in front of someone who specializes in talking with them. So right. we do have what is referred to as a pink sheet or involuntary commitment. Um, basically, what that is, is if someone, you know, through our investigation, we determine that um, they do have, uh, they, they want to end their lives and they've taken substantial steps towards doing that. Um, like they say they want to hang themselves and they've got a rope. Or, um, you know, they've taken several pills uh, in an attempt to end their life. Or they're at a risk to themselves or others. Um, it puts that into this criteria. The pink sheet criteria then implies we will take them to the hospital and we will... Uh, you know, fill out this pink sheet in the hospital, keep them until they are evaluated. And I think that's the big thing. So when I was first hired on, you know, it was like, no, it's a involuntary commitment. They stay at the hospital for up to 48 hours. Mm. Key thing is 48 hours. Yeah. And the reason I bring that up is I had an incident with uh, a guy at a park. He was in, in a bathroom and uh, there was some blood coming out of the door. Uh, the door was locked. Um, we ended up going there, booting the door in. This guy uh, had cut his wrist so deep that if you're not familiar what coagulated blood is, um, it's where it like thickens and, and hardens. And he had cut himself so deep, he had so much blood coming out, coagulated and clogged the sink. Um, he, was, he was fairly lethargic when we dealt with him. Um, we took him to the hospital, pink sheeted him. Uh, he was out later that day. We got called on him again. And that's part of the issue we're running into and in, in that law enforcement is seeing is, is we need help. When we go there and someone doesn't meet the, the criteria of, of pink sheet status and we have to look at the family and say, I'm sorry, 
Carpet. We have nothing else we can do. Mm-hmm. You're on your own. And we're going to get into some questions that really cut deep. Mm-hmm. Um, because I know for a fact, a lot of families are dealing with that type of so stuff. many, so many, we get called and we have to say, we, we can't help you. Like, well, these are the resources we have. And then what ends up happening? You're like, well, yeah, I tried, but insurance won't cover that. Or you have to have this insurance to get that one, but they won't accept us or they don't have an open date. I've had a, my close family member wait up to two months before getting in front of someone to help them through crisis. How is that okay? That's unreal. We need more resources for them. We need help for them. I've had outside resources come to the scene, respond to the scene to assist. They're, I'm at about a 50-50 where they've been able to take the whole scene and help the family. But I've also had several times where they're like, there's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do. And we get yelled at. That's the hard part is... Our hearts are breaking. We want to be able to help these family members. I've sat in front of moms and dads, and they're just sobbing. We don't know what else to do. Our, our son or our daughter is going through this and this and this. And for every reason that you just detailed out, whether it's the insurance or being pushed back, law enforcement is drowning with this subject. We are literally being put into a no-win situation where we arrive. Can, I mean, imagine for a second here. You, you are experiencing a, a in-the-moment trauma and you see your loved one in a crisis and you pick up the phone and you call for emergency service. What do you expect? You expect that the, uh, the cops or whoever, and again, this is a situation where cops are going to respond because we've already talked about how paramedics and, and the firefighter paramedics will sit and stage in an area until it's all clear and clean and and safe for them to come in and do what they're going to do. But imagine if you were a family member and you reached out to the cops and they came on scene and they evaluated the situation and then pulled you into another room and said, there's nothing we can do. How are you going to feel? Yeah, You're going to feel at a loss. You have experienced it. I've experienced it. Every single officer across the nation who has handled a psychiatric, I guarantee you, that they've had to look family members in the eye and say, I'm sorry, we can't. This is where our level of jurisdiction ends. And I'll do you one more as far as the ones that really are hard. You've been on those ones where the, the person is by themselves, right? They're suicidal. Um, they don't want to talk with us. They don't want to. Um, they, they just won't work with us. Mm-hmm. Trying to get them to the hospital family member is, are not right with them. Like say we're close, say we're outside the house talking with family, we're talking with him on the phone or her on the phone, they won't come out. And then we have to turn around and say, yeah, there's nothing we can do as far as they fully intend on ending their life, but it's not against the law. And we cannot put ourselves in the position to force that situation, right? And we have to turn around and, and just say, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. And, th- and that's yeah. what's frustrating about these calls is, is that comes out of my mouth so often in these calls is, hey, I'm sorry. We try to talk with them and, and they're just not willing to come with us. You, you know, we're not going to get to yeah. the point of we're going to end their life. So kind of, so our listeners understand that are involved with this is 
it seems easy enough that we just boot the door in and safely take them into custody. Well, we boot that door in and they've got a firearm in their hand Mm -hmm. and then they raise it. Us as officers are going to try to go home at night. Yeah. And then we engage that individual. Yeah. How, how that's, that's not received well by public. It's not received well by officers and it does not feel good for the officers that did that. No, not at all. And I, and I apologize. Let me go back. I didn't mean to say jurisdiction. I meant that's where our authority ends, but on, on point with what you're saying, uh, talk or speaking of booting doors. I mean, you remember my incident, we get a psychiatric call. Uh, our dispatch had, had looked up the history of the individual because basically there was water flowing down into a lower unit and the individual called in and said, look, I don't know what's happening with my neighbor upstairs but there's water flowing down into my unit. Um, I know that the cops have been out here multiple times within the last couple weeks. Can you guys come in and check and see what's going on up there? Well, before myself and a couple other officers arrived, we did our due diligence along with dispatch, look at the history and recognize that the individual in this particular unit, the one that was in question as to where the water was coming from, uh, had been involved in a couple recent psychiatric incidents. Long story short, I ended up booting that door. And then I ended up having surgery later because of that boot to the door. Because we were going inside to save a life. Because after putting all the information that we had together, we believed that he was inside trying, trying to drown himself in his bathtub, which is where the water came from. These are the types of situations that law enforcement officers are placed into to where it's a no-win situation because, again, like what would have happened had I boot that door and we would have been met with a rifle or a gun? We're only doing our job. We're trying to save a life. We couldn't get him on the phone. We did everything that our policy put into place in saying try to contact this individual first. Nothing was there. We had no other choice. Mm-hmm. And, and you and I both know we never want to put, be put into any situation we're, we're not in control anymore. And we're not in control at that point. We're going into someone else's domain. I don't even have the layout of the, the apartment. Exigent circumstances. I had to boot the door. Got injured doing so, trying to save a life. But these are the types of situations that, that loved ones call in and, and expect us to respond to. Another example. You remember this one because we were both on the same shift. And this is something that, again, is, is not new to law enforcement, but it puts law enforcement officers into a no-win situation. This situation turned out as good as what it could have, but we were just absolutely being bombarded with calls this particular day. Mm-hmm. I was completely out of my area. I had to go. We were so busy, and we had so many things going on, I, what did I go two two areas over to back up yeah. an officer? And by area, he's talking about like the beat he works, the yeah. the section yeah. of the city he he's assigned. And so I had a I, this is not even an area that I even back up. I'm out of my area. I don't even back this area, but that's how busy we were. And I had to go and respond to help another officer with a psychiatric. And the call that we got in, the family members said. We have a loved one, and it was multiple family members, and they were hysterical. We got into the house, 
This particular officer had arrived first. I'm his backup. He had gathered enough information that the individual who was suicidal was no longer in there. Family members are hysterical, not knowing where he went. Um, I could see blood on the counter. There were, uh, from the information that the primary officer gathered, there were superficial cuts that he had made. He was in possession of a razor blade. He was in possession of a knife. We had no idea whether or not he was in possession of a gun, but he had gone into a, a, a mental health crisis to a point that family members did not know what to do. And so they called the cops. So I arrive on scene and the primary officer says he left about a few minutes before I arrived. Could you go out and circulate? And so I started circulating for the individual because at that point we're, we're now dealing with someone who's in a mental health crisis in public with dangerous weapons, with dangerous weapons, with the uh, information that was given to us. Well, it didn't take me long to find him. And you remember that situation escalated quickly. Mm -hmm. And without drawing the story out too much longer, he was trying to commit suicide by cop. And he popped up really quick and he ran at me. And I don't even remember pulling my firearm. That's just part of the training that we in that, that we uh, participate in. And it was muscle memory. But I found myself looking over my sights as the individual was running at me. And he stopped, thankfully, because the information that I had, I mean, he stopped probably 25 to 30 yards in front of me. And he was yelling at me. He was cussing at me. And he's saying he wanted me to kill him. And he said he was going to kill me. Now, granted, like we were mentioning before, we had paramedics in the area staged. We had firefighter paramedics in the area staged. In fact, there was a fire truck probably about 30 yards behind me. And so the same fire truck that had staged in the area, this individual had found his way to the same street that they were staged on for the house that we had responded to. And here I am, they're about 20, 35, or 25, 35 yard, or 25 to 30 yards behind me. And then I have an individual that is trying to get me to shoot him 25 to 30 yards in front of me. And I was holding there, and all I was doing, amazingly, I, I, we, we never know how we're going to respond, but this is where training comes in. And if you've heard our past episodes, we are huge advocates for training, making sure firearms training, DT training. My training went into effect, and I was actually really calm. And he was reaching into his coat, and I was screaming at him to show me your hands. Show me your hands. Not knowing what else he had in there. If he had a firearm, it was going to be a bad situation. But I was far enough back that I felt comfortable with the situation if he was only in possession with that razor blade and the knife. I was giving him, giving him commands to show me his hands, and he wouldn't do it. That same officer, because I got on the radio and said, I've got one at gunpoint. I know you came screaming. I think you were doing reports. <laughs> At the department, yeah, at the I just time. dealt with someone yeah. else on a different mental health situation, but but yeah, yeah we and the, and then you came. We were able to finally get the individual detained. Unfortunately, he was tased, and that was the coordination. I I stayed on lethal, but the officer who was primary immediately came over to the street that we were at, 
he went less lethal, and we were eventually able to uh, save this man's life. That is a terrible situation for the family members, for all the neighbors that had come out who, who were listening to the commotion. We, we, it was like one big concert, and everybody was on their lawns. It was a Saturday, so people were home, not at work, and we just had viewer after viewer, cell phones were out. Even the firefighters felt the need that they had to get their cell phones out just in case. I mean, this was pre-body cam yeah. nine years ago. Um, but again, I feel for any officer that is placed into that situation. Fortunately, I did not have to end a life that day. But these are the things where we're crying out to the individuals and saying, can we, can we get more help? Yeah. You know, what can we do within our communities to get officers more help? And what programs can we put into effect to where officers don't have to respond when, it is already, when it's escalated too far? It'd be nice to, to get a fix on, on the front end before it gets to that level, right? Um, and that's an example of why currently officers do have to respond um, and, and why we continue to respond because they have that potential to go violent or like I had said earlier, you know, a lot of people will turn to uh, suicide by cop um, in these situations. Um, and there's been officers um, that have done that and left law enforcement because it was too, they were justified. It was investigated and justified, but it was too much for them to, because the person think it's, I don't want to say it's easy, but if you go to a scene and someone's stabbing someone or an active shooter at a school, it's much easier for us as humans to justify the reason we shot that individual. Mentally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mentally. We're talking us. Yeah. Our mental health. In law enforcement. Now you go to a call of someone who's in crisis, who needs help, and it's to the point where we had to engage them. That starts to really um, mess with officers, and we've seen it. Uh, We talk about in CIT training. Our agency has seen it, that people have just left law enforcement after that situation. Yeah. Um, So that's an example. The other thing I want to talk about is uh, other reasons that officers, you know, people have recognized that officers are needed. So we've talked about a pink sheet before. Um, There is something called a blue sheet. So if someone is meeting with a doctor, they're talking with their doctor, and the doctor determines that that person is a danger to themselves, they call law enforcement. They do what's called a blue sheet, which is the same thing as a pink sheet, but a doctor is now the one saying, no, they're a danger to themselves or others. They need to go to the, the um, some sort of uh, involuntary commitment procedure, whatever your local... Um, health professionals have and so what happens is they call police we respond we get the blue sheet and then we take that person to the hospital wherever it's located and the same thing with what they refer to as a white sheet that's court ordered but again law enforcement are the ones who respond to take that person to the location that is specified and like i said for us it's the hospital um, you know, there are different facilities around the, the nation, but the, the big takeaway I want to give is that's really our only solution. And mm-hmm. how many times when you were on patrol, 
And we're still seeing it now that we go pink sheet someone and then they're out the same day or the next day. And it kind of goes into this repeating cycle because. And just so people understand when people go in for those evaluations, the doctors will sit down with them and they have their questionnaire, right? And they go through the questionnaire and the individual can say, you know, I was about an hour ago, but I'm good now. Mm. I feel great. I'm not going to kill myself. And what do they do? Discharge them. They're gone. And that's, that's the ever revolving door that you and I deal with. And that's exactly what you're talking about here. And it, it, going back to your blue sheet situation, when I was on patrol, it, it would be so frustrating to get these calls from doctors. And they're like, oh, I've got a blue sheet, but I need you to take my, uh, my client in. You know, I'll give you the blue sheet when you come here, but I need you to go ahead and take them to the hospital. Uh, yeah, they're probably going to be pretty angry when you arrive. I, I really don't know whether they're going to get violent with you. These are doctors mm-hmm. who have made the determination, I've got enough to do a blue sheet, but now I need to involve the cops just in case this thing gets gnarly. Is that fair to us? No-win situation. It's definitely tough. No-win situation. And real quick, I have some quotes here. And in line with what we're talking about, these are uh, law enforcement officers who have been in. This was a study that was done. Um, It was an unpublished survey. It's called the Management of the Severely Mentally Ill and its effects on homeland security um, and law enforcement. Um, Anyway, this was a, a survey that they interviewed many, many law enforcement officers who had been in law enforcement for over 20 years. This is the one that I was telling you about. Mm-hmm. And these officers have a unique perspective because they have been in law enforcement for over 20 years, but they have seen this increase, massive increase in mental health crisis across the United States, not just within their own particular area. And one officer who was interviewed said, and this is a quote, the biggest problem does not lie with law enforcement. The problem is found when citizens can't get assistance due to the danger requirement. And danger is in quotations, almost like the uh, pink sheet, blue sheet that you and I are talking about. The danger requirement to actually get them in, even if they don't want to, to see a professional and be evaluated. Mm -hmm. And again, continuing the quote, when they have nowhere else to turn, they call the police to handle the issue. This takes a large amount of time to then pull strings to try and get help for the citizens. But then it turns into this catch and release attitude of the mental health professionals, i.e. anti-suicide contracts, promise not to do it again, et cetera. Kind of like what I talked about. It's like, Hey, I, uh, yeah, about an hour ago I was having a crisis, but I feel good now Mm -hmm. and I'm not going to kill myself. And Oh, I'm not going to hurt anybody along the way. Boom. Discharged. And so these, these quotes are, are very, very interesting to me because they, as I was reading these, it was already what you and I had felt mm-hmm. within our time in law enforcement. Another officer was interviewed, and this is his quote. Police seem to be the only resource that is mandated to be trained and deal with these individuals in the field, usually because there is a disturbance that prompts the call of these individuals. However, EMS, local hospitals, etc., are not required the same level of participation in the de-escalation of a mental event as the police are. 
this is what we are crying in law enforcement. Please help us. Please put together programs to where you're not just pointing the finger at law enforcement and saying, you guys are shooting far too many people. When it gets to a point where we are, like my example, me personally, pulling my firearm out and being put into a split second decision, am I going to have to end this life? I don't want to, but I'm not going to be put into danger myself. And I'm not going to allow other citizens to be put into danger Mm. for a mental crisis or not. That's just the way it is. But that's what law enforcement is unfortunately put into far too often. It's a no-win situation. We need help. We need to have more resources. Just like Matt said, you know, we need those resources, you know, and, and it's, it's crucial that we do get the, the help and we continue to try to build on that. Um, we have had some questions asked to us and we are going to address those. But before we do, I do want to take a second and just say, if you are someone who is going through mental crisis or you are dealing with this regularly or even every once in a while or you know someone who is listen to this have you ever lost rhythm or reason struggled for motivation like time stopped in a darker season ever felt trapped in a cycle of negativity Overwhelmed by anxiety or uncomfortable in your own company. Like your skin doesn't fit. Or like you couldn't give even the tiniest bit of yourself to the people you love. There's a good chance you might have, and if not, you might. There are millions fighting this fight. And there are times in this fight when we might need heroes. Someone to talk to and someone to hear us. Someone who's there for us when we are ready. Who won't shut us down if the conversation gets awkward or heavy. Who'll ask if we're feeling okay. But who are they? If you can be there in the difficult moments. If your ear can be a refuge when our words are homeless. If you can be patient when we need to complain. Hold on to your judgement and let us explain. Then together the power is ours. We have the opportunity. We can be the generation that makes a difference. With our determination, we can build a time of acceptance. We can understand how our mental well-being affects us. We can reach out and listen to those around us. Together, we can. We will. And that's from the We Can, We Will uh, initiative. You can find that online. Uh, That's one of the videos that we found that was uh, pinpointed specifically for this uh, Awareness Month. Yep. And we know that there are so many uh, families out there and individuals who are suffering from this. It's not just the individual that's going through the mental health crisis. issues day in and day out within their own life, but it also affects family members. And this particular listener uh, who reached out to us this week had some questions. And I'd like to address some of these questions. We we did our best to research. um, The questions that were given, we're not the the professionals necessarily in, in, in this realm. We experience it. We see it. 
But first and foremost, anybody out there who has questions about mental health, please seek professional uh, guidance and assistance as to how you can help your friends, family members who are going through these things. Because we definitely are not the professionals. Unfortunately, we are kind of put into the, the line of fire to be the, the middle person. And Cam and I have already talked about that, but we want to be able to address um, some of these questions that this listener has. And if this is something similar to what you're going through, then hopefully you'll listen. Hopefully we can provide as much information and guidance as possible. But the listener says, if a family member doesn't admit or doesn't recognize they are mentally ill, do you tell them? And what if they get angry when you do tell them? I think it, the, the questions here are... are they cut deep. They, they do. They cut deep. And I can tell you on a, on a professional uh, level, Cam and I have dealt with these questions. These are not new. Family members have asked me this, uh, not just one, not just two, not just three, so many times throughout the years on calls that we went to where we were helping out. And that's a really good question. If you go back to our CIT training, one thing that we were always taught as officers is not to play into the mental illness. And so the individual, if, if we're dealing with uh, someone who has a bipolar disorder, or if we're dealing with someone that is uh, paranoid schizophrenic and someone who is literally going through something that nobody else hears, nobody else sees. We were taught don't play into that and let them know everything's going to be okay. I just don't see, or I just don't hear what you're hearing and what you're seeing, not necessarily telling the individual that they're crazy, but to this point, and, the, and going back to the, the first question, if a family member doesn't admit or doesn't recognize that they are mentally ill, should you keep it from them? Everything that I have researched online, that's what this show is a part of. We promise you that we will do research. We're not necessarily the experts in this arena. Right. We're cops. Mm -hmm. But we're going to try. We're going to try to help and we're going to try to clear that corner with you. We're going to try to assist you along the way and find the truth. Every bit of research that I found online, I could not find something that says keep it a secret. And, and Cam, I don't know if you've come across something like that. But again, just going back to our training, if as officers we're not supposed to feed into it, I don't know how you help the individual unless you're giving indications that that individual needs help. Right. Yeah. And, and I was going to go straight back to CIT as well, because they do talk about, in fact, I remember the, they made us wear these uh, kind of like virtual reality goggles and had like this mouse scurry across yeah, the, right, the screen. Right. And it's like, a, this is what it's like for them. They see it as if it's really happening. Right. Don't play into it and be like, oh, and jump when you see the mouse and be like, yeah, dude, that thing almost got me. Yeah, don't play right. into it. But also don't say, dude, you are so crazy. Stop yeah, it. There's right. nothing going on. And in fact, this week alone, I dealt with a, a call. Uh, a female was dealing with this. I was the backup officer and I felt really grateful I was the backup officer because the primary is very good at this stuff. And I'm watching him communicate and she's showing these images like there is someone sitting in that chair right there. And, you know, the way he talks to him and says, yeah, you know, I'm just I don't see it. Um, so on, so forth. just kind of 
talking, being calm, listening to them. And as you let them talk a little more, don't jump straight into, hey, you need to go see a doctor. But just slowly like, uh, do you see like this often that other people aren't seeing and and just kind of building into it. And then maybe like, hey, let's just go talk with someone real quick. Like, I'll go with you. Um, and not as just, a support, as a support yeah. and not like, uh, I'm just going to drop you off and you're going to go see this psych doc. No, I'm saying just slowly ease into it and then have someone who specializes in this talk with them right. or see if they can swing by the house. I don't know, but like you said, we're not professionals, but a professional is someone who can help you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, another question that this listener had if a family member is mentally ill but verbally abusive how do you set those limits another tremendous question you know how many family members i i i have gone on scene and had a mother and a dad arguing with one another about their mentally ill child Mm -hmm. adult child a lot of times and the father will look at me when I was back on patrol dealing with these situations and say, well, she's always pushing into the, or she's always assisting him when, when I'm the one that's trying to be, uh, he needs to grow up and he needs to do this. And basically saying that they, that individual is assisting the mental illness. And there's an argument that goes back and forth between uh, spouses and family members as to um, how to handle these things. And I don't, I don't know that anybody is necessarily, I don't want to say that no one's wrong with it, but there needs to be better communication even within the family and with, uh, between spouses. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that every parent loves their child. This is not an easy situation for in, any family to go through. And so during my research, obviously not as the profession, uh, the professional in this, but I found this individual, her name is Natasha Tracy, and she has an award-winning uh, social media site. Uh, it's a blog, really. It's a bipolar disorder blog um, talking about mental illnesses. But many of these serious mental illnesses um, have some of the same elements in terms of how to handle that family member that's going through that mental crisis. And some of the things that, that she talks about um, how do you prepare for the conversation, right? Going back to, should you tell them or not? Uh, what if they're verbally abusive? She, she goes into these things and there's a lot of resources out there. I mean, this is just one of many. It's just one that I found that I thought I would bring up, but how do you prefer, prepare for these conversations? And she says, try to be calm and unemotional. The other person is going to experience enough emotions for both of you. Make sure to tell the person that you care about them and still love them. One of the biggest fears of people with a mental illness is that people will stop loving them because of their illness. Make it clear this isn't happening and they are not alone. Tell the person that they are normal, not a freak, and they are just suffering from an illness. Mm -hmm. Try to understand that it can take time for this sort of thing to sink in. It might take the person a few days to think about what you have said before they decide treatment is right for them. Know that if a person gets angry with you about this conversation, it is their pain talking, and it's likely not about you at all. 
Try to stay detached enough not to react emotionally. You might have to have this conversation or one like it more than once. That's somebody that knows far more than you and I can about things like this. And I, I read these things and I said, man, she, she put it beautifully. But these are things that I know uh, family members need to know. How do you have that conversation with an individual? I agree with not hiding it. You and I just talked about that. What if they become angry or like our listener and the question she had? What if they become verbally abusive? How do you set limits? I don't know that there's anything out there like a, the example that I give or where a husband and wife are arguing. Mm-hmm. The dad, I think, is going to have to set his own limits because it's apparent that he feels passionately and has that kind of like, I'm so frustrated that we need to kick him out. I'm not going to tell that dad, here's the limits you need to set. I think that dad needs to find those limits himself. But I also think the mom needs to recognize, am I, um, am I more of a hinderment or am I helping my family member? And so limits are going to be something I think that family members are going to have to communicate. You agree with that, Cam? I mean, I, I, I really don't know how else to tell uh, this listener limits. I don't, I, don't, I don't know that there's a book on limits. I don't think there's a one uh, size fits all. Yeah. You're just going to have to know who you are. Yeah. You're going to have to know the family member, what they're going through, and you're going to have to do your best to decide. Mm-hmm. If you can't handle certain verbal lashings from said individual, you need to do what's appropriate to save you. Yep. And so you're going to have to set those limits. And I, there's nothing wrong with that. If the family member is on disability but can't manage their money and are verbally abusive to the person managing their money, what are the guidelines? Again, I think that goes back to the limits. Uh, If the individual can't manage the money on their own, but you're getting to a point where you can't handle the verbal lashings from the individual that has the mental diagnosis that's causing them to lash out the way they are, Mm Maybe it's time to uh, find someone else to take over the money aspect. If it's becoming too much for you, that's the only thing I can think of is like maybe there's another family member that's willing to step in and be the one that manages that money. Yeah, and there are facilities out there um, where uh, adults dealing with mental health can live there. Um, But it kind of goes back to what we, we talked about earlier is do you qualify for it? They're obviously not cheap. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because there has to be staff there. Um, they're usually designed to look or be houses in communities um, to try to give these individuals with mental health the, the most normal life they can have. But obviously it's 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 not possible for parents to, you know, be 60, 70 years old, taking care of their grown son, daughter, whoever, grandchild, whoever it is. Um because Sometimes it's just too much. It is too yeah. much. So that's another thing to try to look for, see if there are those types of resources out there or mediators that can deal with the money aspect. Um, unfortunately, this is the part that really is tough for our job is is there's not much we as law enforcement can do, but these right. are some great right. resources that hopefully can help our, our listener yeah. And, and individuals that are just much smarter than uh, you and I in this field. Yep. 
we know how to respond tactically to try to keep a scene safe. And we know if a law has been broken and we have to take action. But these are, are cut deep questions that are very personal family to family. And like I said, it, it causes arguments amongst uh, spouses, amongst siblings, um, uh, friends. Limits and things like that, you're just going to have to temp check for yourself. You're going to have to fill this situation out and you're going to have to say, what is best for me? What is best for my child, my husband, a friend that's going through this crisis? And then you're going to have to act upon it. One of the things that, that uh, real quick, before we end here, on this same site, one of the things that I like that she said, she said, learn everything about what you're dealing with. And I will liken it to something like this. If, Cam, if you had a child that was deaf and you never took the time to learn sign language, you're not, you, you wouldn't have that same communication with a child that a, a parent to child has. In the same, I, I will call it a, a, obviously a parallel, but when you're talking about mental health awareness and you have a child that has a specific diagnosis, just like if you had a child that was deaf, you would do everything you possibly could to learn everything you could about communicating with that child. What I like about what she said on this website is she said, learn everything that you possibly can about this mental illness so that you can learn how best to communicate with your loved one or your friend. It's the best advice that I can give anybody. Mm -hmm. Make sure that you do your research. You know I'm huge on research. You have to educate yourself. You can't just sit back and always be spoon-fed information and other people's perspectives and truth because it may not be right for your situation. Right. And so, again, I, I use that parallel and I'll say to the listener and to anybody else out there who is experiencing this, learn everything that you possibly can from professionals, from books, from websites, so that you can learn how best to communicate and how best to handle these so difficult. I mean, this is such muddy water. I, there's just not an answer to everything, but we're trying. Mm -hmm. That's why since 1949, we have had Mental Health Awareness Month. We've had people very smart within this nation realize this is a problem. The trends that we've talked about earlier, it keeps getting worse. And we want, not just in law enforcement, but day-to-day -day life for family members, for friends, to be able to uh, live peacefully and understand mental health awareness a little bit more. I couldn't agree more. This is a, a deep topic. Um, for both us as, as law enforcement, as well as we both, like I said earlier, have family members that are dealing with, with this. And um, just kind of like Matt said, get on that research, see what you can figure out. Uh, I appreciate you letting us clear this corner. So this episode went a little longer. Uh, like we have said before, hit us up with your comments, what you think we can improve on. Let us know uh, what you like as far as length, but also, let us know about this topic. What do you think uh, could help us in law enforcement when we deal with mental health? I want to end. Uh, this is being released on Memorial Day. Um, and I, I've mentioned before um, that I am a, a Marine Corps veteran. Um, and so this is really near and dear to my heart for, for many reasons. Um, I had 
uh, combat engineer, Corporal Eric Torbert, who was attached to my unit in Afghanistan, who unfortunately on December 18th, 2010, uh, provided that ultimate sacrifice, um, took a knee on an IED and unfortunately was not able to survive uh, what happened. Um, Memorial Day is a long weekend. I think over time people kind of forget what it's for. They start thanking veterans and and stuff like that. Um, If you know family members who have lost loved ones, um, you know, reach out to them. It's important to to have a a good weekend, um, but just kind of take some time to remember why that weekend is possible and just kind of reflect on that. Um, Learn that. Thank you. Uh, I look forward to our next episodes. They're going to be good ones, and we'll clear some more corners.